get through a night that lasts 66 days? How do you get through a night that lasts 66 days? That's a reality for folks who live in parts of northern Alaska up near the Arctic Circle. Uh, during the, the depths of winter, how do they cope? Well, uh, one resident uh, who was being uh, interviewed on this very thing. But not having sunlight during the daytime creates a unique set of challenges one might never realize unless they experience it for themselves. Wearing a wristwatch is a must. Turning every single light in the office and home on during the daytime and turning 99% of them off in the early evening is helpful for keeping a natural rhythm established. How do you get through a night like that? How do you get through a dark, dark night? The reality is, now let me transpose this over into a, a larger, more of a symbolic way to think about this. The reality is that life in this world can oftentimes be like a 66-day-long night. How do you cope with that? Right? Life in this world it can oftentimes be very much like a 66-day-long night. How do we cope with that? We're going to press into a, another one of our uh, installments here in this summer sermon series, looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in John's Gospel to get at the answer to that question. How do we live? How do we live in a dark world? Well, Jesus has come and he has proclaimed, in fact, that he is the light of the world. And that is well worth our hearing at any time, especially as we're thinking about that question. So, if you've got a Bible, I ask you to turn with me now to John chapter 8. The text will be on the screen, John 8. That's the fourth of the four Gospels that we, that we have. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then come Acts and the, the letters of the New Testament. Uh, but we're in, in John, the book of John, John chapter 8, uh, verses 12 through 20. We will be looking at some other passages along the way over the next few minutes, uh, but we're really going to be honing in, actually, reading the whole of this particular passage, um, but most especially, we're going to keep coming back again and again and again to verse 12, okay? The very beginning of, the, of this text that we're about to read, all right? So John chapter 8, starting at verse 12, reading on through verse 20. Hear now God's word. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Can we pray for a minute? Lord,
Lord, what Dave said earlier to start the service is absolutely right. Worship is war. Even as we are opening your word here, settled into our seats, in the calm of this moment, it's war. War for the affections of our hearts. War for who and what will rule. War for who will reign, who we will look to, who we will turn to, who we will live for. We thank you that this is not a war that we fight in our own strength. We have but to cry out to you, our captain, our commander, our king, and you are glad to hear. So we cry out to you now, and and we do ask that you would win this war in our hearts, that you would help us to hear what you are saying to us even at this moment as you proclaim that you are the light of the world. What does that mean for us? Pray in your name. Amen. Well, it's hot. Like I had to tell you that, right? Um, And so I'm thinking I'm going to do something a little weird here. Uh, Christmas in July. Okay, so I'm going to bring your, uh, start this off with an illustration and analogy taking you to December, hoping that maybe it might moderate your internal body temperature just, just by a half degree. Um, so one of my fond memories as a child growing up at, at Christmas time, Christmas Eve, the luminaries. Some of you may have heard me talk about this, this before. I know my kids certainly have more times than they care to recount. Um, the luminaries in the neighborhood that, that I grew up in, and what, what those are, in case you're not familiar with this, it was these paper bags, sandwich bags, actually, or lunch bags, um, and you'd put a little sand in the bottom of them, and then put a little candle in there, and you'd light it, and you'd have these bags in front of every house down on the street, and everyone in the neighborhood would agree, okay, we're going to set these out, and then we're going to light them right at dusk, and just let them burn, let them burn all night on, on, on Christmas Eve. That, that was... The deal, and I remember as a child, especially just marveling at, at this. Just we'd come home from from the Christmas Eve service, and the thing that my brother and my brother and I it helped us to endure that Christmas Eve service. In fact, would would be that we would look forward to my parents driving through the neighborhood, and as you could look down, especially those straight stretches. Although the the curves were pretty cool too, those straight stretches, it looked like it felt like you were a plane coming in for a night landing. It, it, that's what it, it looked like to us. In fact, it was so, the, the lights were so well done, at least at one time, uh, in that neighborhood that, honestly, the, the cars, if you're careful, many of the drivers would just turn off the headlights. Just turn off the headlights, and you just slowly but carefully make your way around the neighborhood, and it just grabbed my young heart's attention, this, this idea of, of this light and darkness and the reality of the darkness and yet it you know still yet being able to make our way because of of the light well there's something of that here in john's gospel in the imagery the contrast between light and darkness and you see it time and again especially in in john's writings not just in his gospel but in his letters and in the book of revelation as well Uh, darkness and this light that the darkness cannot overcome he speaks to that in, in john chapter one uh, you think in terms of what this meant, especially to a pre-electric 
culture and, and context, of course, in which this was, was originally written. So, you know, when, it, it's, when they're speaking of the dark of night, I mean, it's, that's not a symbol. It's a thing. The dark of night. Sun goes down. It is dark. Uh, dark, dark uh, in that part of the world in that, in that time. Universal symbolic, uh, universal symbols, you think in terms of, of darkness. You see this across cultures. Uh, the absence of, of light. Well, darkness has some how shall I say, uh, some tricky friends. Um, the absence of light creates opportunity not just to hide from evil, but to hide in order to carry out evil as well. Biblically, you see it again and again and again, the imagery uh, in John, but all through the scriptures, that, that darkness is an image of, of, of ignorance, of folly and falsehood, and a, a loss of or a lack of truth, the tyranny of sin over the human heart, and also as a spiritual force resisting, standing in, in, in resistance to the coming of God's kingdom. Darkness. Darkness. You, you, you see that again and again. And, and we know that. We, we can look around us and we know something of the signs. We feel it. We know it. We experience it. Personally or perhaps maybe you know, right up in our, in our, in our lives, in our homes, maybe, maybe we, at least we can appreciate it in the news or around us, a, a dark world of, of disease and emptiness and brokenness, poverty, injustice, racism, all kinds of different worldviews and philosophies and ideals that are trying to deal with that and explain that and into that, into that mix comes this pronouncement of Jesus. I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. This dark world, I am the light of the world. Well, how are we to respond to that? To, to, to look to him. He has come for, with this proclamation, this bold proclamation. I am the light of the world. How are we to respond to that? By, by looking to him. Now, what would it mean to look to him? What would it mean to look to him as the light of the world? Well, if you've got your, your outline, this is where we're going in the the three points uh, to try and wrestle with and, and, and grasp something of what it means to come to him as the light of the world. First, to reckon with this shocking claim that he is making here. Uh, secondly, the stunning promise that he is giving. And then third, the simple condition. All right, so those three things. The, uh, the shocking claim, the stunning promise, and the simple Conditions. So first, the shocking claim. It is so astonishing. And Jesus' hearers, as they're hearing this for the first time, indeed are shocked and astonished at what he is, is saying. Just again, verse 12. It's just so profound. I am, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Now, there are at least a couple different ways that this was bracing and shocking for the people even at that, at that moment. The first is because Jesus, and we've seen this already in, in just the few times that we've looked at some of these I am statements. Jesus is making an implicit claim to deity here, okay? Uh, common images of light, granted, you know, if you, if you hear Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world, this may be where immediately your thoughts are, are going. Um, that, well, hey, light reveals what's there. Uh, light um, guides us along the way. Light 
promises, you know, something perhaps of warmth in, in the midst of a cold night. And all that's true, but you may remember something I said last week, which is when you're looking in John's gospel, in particular trying to delve into what do these I am statements mean, you need to read broad and you need to read back. So you typically need to read big chunks of John to understand what he's saying, and you need to go back into biblical history to grapple with the, the, the deeper, uh, the, the past ways that God has revealed himself that Jesus is most likely tapping into uh, here. So, with that, let me tell you, as far as reading back, this is what you see. The, 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 the broader context of what we're reading here, just in these few verses in John 8, is John chapter 7 and 8. And if you go back and read John 7 and 8, what you see is this is taking place in the midst of what was called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, that was a, a celebration, a Jewish celebration. It was an annual thing in the early fall. The people would come to Jerusalem, and they would set up these temporary shelters. You can call them tents. You could call them, I wouldn't call them a shack, but a, a, a booth, a tent, a shelter, a temporary thing. And the idea was to mark that they would be reminded of the time in, in, in their history, in their relationship with the Lord, in which he brought them out of exile through the exodus, out of Egypt, and in the course of their wanderings through the wilderness, how he cared for them. This was meant to remind them of that time. But here's something interesting. In the historical cultural context of the, 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 the celebration of this feast, there was something going on there that had to do with the lighting of torches. Now, you don't see that in the text. But John's readers may well, most likely would have known about this. John certainly did. Okay? Lighting of torches all over the city. It was a magnificent sight. A magnificent sight at night. The, again, this is a pre-electric time. But now the whole city is lit with these torches. Okay? And this is the last day of the festival. And the torches are all about to be extinguished. And in that moment... And in, at the temple, Jesus steps forward and says, I am the light. You see, you see the, the, the weightiness of the moment, of the context. In, in the midst of all of that, Jesus steps forward and says, I am the light. I am, we read from uh, Exodus 13 a few moments ago, I am the presence, the one who was with you in your wilderness wanderings as the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, I am the one who was with you then and I, that one, is with you now. I am the light, the light of the world. You see how you need to read broad and back to really grapple with what Jesus' meaning is when he steps forward and makes this statement. Absolutely shocking, I mean, to the people who are hearing this because they're, they're getting it, they're connecting the dots. A claim to deity. Not just that, but a claim of inclusivity. This was also astonishing. This was also, can I just say, offensive to Jesus' hearers in the moment because you notice that Jesus does not say, I am the light of Israel. He does not stop short of, of j just saying that. He, yes, he is the light of Israel, but from the very beginning, that was never, it was never meant to, it was meant to start there, but never stop there. Sadly, by this point in Israel's history, this is, that was the, their mentality. 
He is just the God of Israel. He is just our God. Sadly, losing sight of their broader mission and intent uh, that he was, had, why he had come and brought them to him himself. No, Jesus is saying here from the very beginning, my people, I am the light not just of Israel but of the world. I am the light of the world. For instance, we could look all through the Old Testament and see examples of this, but let me just take you to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, verse 1. I think it's, yeah, it's there on the screen. Uh, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And you skip down to verse 5. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. You see, from the very beginning, no one was to be left out. There was a shocking inclusivity to the mission of the Christ, of the Messiah. And the people, there as he's there hearing him say this, they're in the temple precincts, are shocked by this claim, this claim of deity and this claim of exclusivity. And indeed, you can see, as you keep reading even through what we read earlier in John uh, 8, there is some resistance to this, that he's been meeting quite a bit already and will, of course, continue to as you keep reading through John's gospel. So let me ask you something before we move on to the second point. Are you offended by what Jesus says? If you're not you're probably not hearing what he says. If you're not offended in some way by Jesus' words here, you're probably not hearing his words here. Let me roll that out for a minute. So what would it be like for us to be offended by his inclusivity? Well, Jesus celebrates everybody. He welcomes everyone, no matter what they've done. He welcomes the, all the wrong, can I just be crass, the wrong kind of people. And he resists, utterly resists, being indebted to self-righteous moralism of the religious. You offended yet? Especially when you come to him and you think you've got a lot to bring to come to the table with. And he says, it's all rags. It's less than worthless. What you're bringing to me is creating a barrier between you and me. You offended yet? How about, let, let's go a little further and flip it here. How about his exclusivity? Now, we, you don't really see that in, in John 8 by any means, but in our own day, Jesus' exclusivity is certainly highly Offensive because again, what does he say? I am not a light of the world. I am, did you catch it? The. I am the light of the world. I'm the only light this world has. Well, my goodness, do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear that? Do you get the shock value of what he is saying here? In essence, he's putting it this way he's saying, I am the sun 
in your solar system. And I'm the only one that there is. This is not Tatooine. All right? I am the only sun in this solar system. Every other religious leader, every other philosophy, every other worldview, every other way of approaching anything is at best, at best, a light-reflecting, crater-pocked moon orbiting me at, at best. I am the one who gives the light. And I'm the only source of light. Are you offended? In a way, I kind of hope you are. Because that's a sign of your listening. If we're struggling with what Jesus says here, his claim to deity, his claim to inclusivity, his claim to exclusivity, that could be really good if we're offended and put off by that. Because it just might mean we're listening. And he could work with that. <laughs> he can work with that. He's coming to us and saying, I'm the light of the world. We need to look to him. Okay, moving to the second point. It's not just the shocking claim. We also have here a stunning promise, an assurance that he is making, uh, putting out here for us if we have but ears to hear. Again, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. Oh, what a promise. Are we hearing it? Jesus is promising, he is setting forth before us freedom. The possibility, the hope of freedom. What kind of freedom, you say? Spiritual freedom from spiritual darkness. The ignorance, the folly, the foolishness, the falsehood, the lies, the tyranny of sin, the darkness. He is saying, I can set you free from that. And, and indeed, as is the case oftentimes with these I am statements, he demonstrates what he is saying with something that he does. Oftentimes what you see in John's gospel is not just an, something that Jesus uh, says with an, a, a statement, I am, and then fill in the blank, but somewhere either before or after, he's going to do something that bears it out. And in this case, you go after John 9. So we look, at the, look at the first few verses of John chapter 9 where Jesus demonstrates for us the fact that he has come as the light of the world. He demonstrates it by restoring the sight, miraculously restoring the sight of this blind man. Verses 1 to 7, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. What is Jesus doing here? Among many other things, besides just showing compassion to this man, he is also demonstrating in a living, in a fleshed-out way, indeed, he is the light of the world, come to, to give us 
to set us free, to set us free from the spiritual darkness. Not just that, to bring flourishing. You look again at what Jesus says. Whoever follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the flourishing, have the light of life. You know, light, the creation of light is God's first creative act. It's the first thing we see him doing in the book of Genesis. Let there be light, and light, even physically we know, is the precursor for light pretty much of any kind in one way, shape, or another. And, and not just life physical, not just life in terms of, a, excuse me, of, of, of a heart beating and lung, lungs breathing, but life, as John says again and again and again, quoting Jesus, eternal life, everlasting life, ever-deepening life. Jesus has come to bring that life, that life to us, thus as, us as people who are living as prisoners, us who are living in darkness. He has come to bring freedom, to bring flourishing, that we might have life, life in Him. Or as, as the great St. Augustine said in his confessions, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. He has come that we might find that rest, the rest that we were made for, designed for, created for. Perhaps we can capture something of this when we consider uh, what it looks like when that life begins to dissipate, when that life starts to recede. Charles Darwin, I would imagine most of us here in the room are familiar with Charles Darwin, is the father of uh, evolutionary theory. Uh, Darwin, according to his biography, turned his back on God at some point and embraced what we today would call secular humanism. And again, biographers will, will tell you, uh, if you look them up and, and read them, over time, Darwin himself said that as his life progressed, he just began to lose taste for life. Uh, he, he could... He found nothing of any value increasingly as he grew older, nothing of any value in beauty or the arts or poetry or music. Life, life lost its flavor for the man as he grew older. He lost all, in his own words, he lost all, as he grew older, lost all sense of wonder and joy. Jesus has come not to rob us of life, but to give us life. Not to rob us of life, but to give us life. Now, you say, and I understand, I get it, the pushback at this point, but what about the Christians that I know who are pretty joyless? What about the ones who seem pretty miserable all the time and are experts at, making, at spreading the misery of life around them? What about them, the folks who seem to know nothing of this life that you speak of. I get it. I get it. But understand this. The problem, that's, what's going on in those cases is not that they've gone too far with the gospel. The problem is they haven't gone far enough. They haven't gone nearly far enough. Jesus has come to give us life. 
Ours is but to look to him. Okay, third point. We've looked at this uh, shocking claim. We've looked at the stunning promise. Now let's talk about this simple condition. Let's just assume for a minute, grant me, grant me this, okay? Grant me, you're tracking with this argument. You're tracking with what Jesus has said. And you're thinking at this point, okay, this sounds plausible. This sounds attractive. This sounds good to me. But how can it be mine? How can it, how is it possible? How can, put it this way, how can the light of life come into my life? What does that mean? What would that take? What would that involve? We don't have far to read. Jesus tells us. He tells us right here in verse 12. Again, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, did you catch it? Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the call of discipleship. That's what this is. You hear this repeatedly in the Gospels. Jesus' call to a man or a woman to follow him. To follow him. The call of discipleship. What is, what is it to mean to be a disciple? You may be wondering. Great question. A lot of different ways to answer, answer that. Here's just a simple way to understand it. A disciple of Jesus is someone who has heard the call of Jesus and has responded by repenting believing the gospel, and is following him. That's a disciple. Someone who's heard the call of Jesus, responded by repenting, believing the gospel, and they are following him. And that's not just a, that's not a one-off. That's something that goes on. That, that's, that's, to, 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 that's a, something that ought to describe the whole of the life of discipleship. It's how we begin life with Jesus, and it's how it continues day by day by day by day with Jesus in the life of discipleship. And a critical component of that, and in Jesus' own words, is clearly following. Following. What does that mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, I, uh, I cheated. I looked it up in the Cambridge English Dictionary. This is the definition of what it means to follow someone, okay? So to follow someone means, quote, to move behind someone or something and go where he, she, or it goes. See, there's two parts to it. Let, let, let me say that again. To move behind someone or something and go where he, she, or it goes. Now, that's a really interesting way to put it, and it pretty well locks in what Jesus is calling for here when he says, follow me. Let's break it down, okay? So, to move behind. To move behind means we have to humble ourselves and to submit ourselves to his authority over our lives. We have to move, not in front, not even beside, behind we humble ourselves and we submit the whole of our lives to him. And then, the second part is, we go. We go where he leads. We let him set the whole agenda for our lives in its entirety continuously, exhaustively. We let him set the agenda for our lives, even how we see our lives, 
and perhaps most especially when you read the, you know, what it means to follow Jesus, to be, have an understanding of suffering redefined, and to know that to follow him will of necessity bring it. But then to have a, a broader, deeper understanding of what it will entail. To follow Jesus. That's what he's calling for. This is the condition. That we would know that the light of life would come into our lives. We have to follow Jesus. We have to follow Jesus. Well, how might that play itself? What, what, what would that look like? Well, let me, if I may, um, use an historical illustration or story drawn from church history. So some of you may be familiar with the name Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was a, a famous 19th century preacher, pastor in, in London. Uh, interesting story from early on in his life. Um, this is, I think it's in the 1950s as a young, 18, 1850s as, as a younger man. There's already, the Lord is stirring in his heart. He's not a believer yet. He's not a follower of Jesus yet. But there's something going on in him. The birth pangs, if you will, are already, already evident, Okay. Uh, the, the early signs of spiritual life are clearly evident. He, and so he's going to church, and he's, because he, 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 he's striving, he's looking, he's searching, he's going to, to, to different churches. But on one particular winter Sunday morning, a snowstorm hits London, and he can't go to the church that he planned on, so he just goes to this little church around the corner. And he walks in, and there's only one other person sitting in the sanctuary, and then one other guy. And then when the time has come for the, the service to commence and the preaching to commence, he realizes this is as many people who are going to be here on this snowy Sunday morning. And he realizes that the preacher is, the minister can't get there because of the snowstorm. So one of the three of them is going to do the preaching. And it's an elder, one of the three who's there, who's never preached a sermon in his life is now being called upon to preach the message. And so this is, in the, in the Anglican tradition, you have a text for the day, and so there's a text. And so this, this uh, dear man picks up the Bible. It's the, the text is from the book of Isaiah. And so he opens up the Bible, and this is what he reads. Look unto me, and be you saved, King James. Look unto me, and be you saved, all the ends of the earth. Now, again, he's never preached a sermon in his life, so he just keeps reading it. Like, out loud. He just keeps repeating that verse again and again and again and again. And finally, he closes the Bible. And according to Spurgeon, this is what he said to his two-person congregation that morning. Look to me and be saved. Don't you see? You don't have to do anything. You don't have to walk anywhere. You don't have to take even one step. Look, all you can do is look. You have to see you can't do anything. You have to see you can't walk anywhere. You just have to look. You have to see what he's done for you. You just have to look. Now, that went on for about 15 minutes. You know, that, that simple theme that this man is, is proclaiming went on for about 15 minutes. And finally, he stopped and just looked at half of his congregation, Charles Spurgeon. He looks right in and into this man's eyes and says, young man, I see you are miserable. And you're going to stay miserable until you obey my text. 
Now, what this elder could not have known is what's going on already in Spurgeon's life. He doesn't know that Spurgeon has come to this morning with this question burning in his mind. How do I get to know spiritual reality? And he's been trying everything. He's been trying moralism. He's tried mysticism. He's tried all the traditional Christian spiritual practices, and nothing is working. And then he hears the words, obey my text. Obey my text. And it dawned on him. This is, again, Spurgeon's words reflecting back on this. Jesus Christ is the light because the only way I can be saved is to look. There's nothing I can do. I have to accept what he's done. That's what it is to follow Jesus. Continuously accepting what he's done and knowing, back to what that dear elder said, that's all we can do is look to him. There's nothing else we can do but look to him. That's how the, life of the, the light of life comes into your life, looking to him every day and in everything, looking to him. Are you looking to him? That's the question before us this morning. Am I? Are we? Here's the reality. This may surprise you. We're all looking to something. Every one of us is, not just in this room, but across this world and through human history, every man, woman, and child who has ever breathed a breath is looking to leaning upon, relying on, trusting in, turning to something outside themselves or perhaps even themselves, we can go this far and say we are all, when it comes right down to it, people of faith. We are all religious in in the truest sense. And into that, Jesus says, you want life? You want life? You really want life? Look to me. Look to me. He's come into this world, this dark, dark world, as the light of the world. Now let me end with this, because I think this this bears some thought as we wrap this up. By the way, your car air conditioner doesn't work any better than, than this room does, too. So there's no rush. There's no rush. Um... Why isn't this better news? I mean that not objectively, I mean subjectively. Why don't, rec- why don't we receive this? Why don't we receive this as better news? I mean, you'd think, you'd think Jesus says he comes as, as the light of the world into the darkness of this world, and you would think that the world, that we would respond with joyful exuberance and relief and expectation and um, engagement. And yet, we look around us, and if we're honest, look within us, and the response to this proclamation is often at best tepid, lukewarm. Why is that? 
we don't appreciate Jesus as the light of the world because we downplay the darkness of the world. We don't appreciate Jesus as the light of this world because we downplay the darkness of this world. We play games and we distract ourselves. May, if I may, uh, take you to a, a, a picture. So, Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings film trilogy uh, is full of moments that capture darkness. In particular, there's a scene in the Two Towers during the battle for, for Helm's Deep. Those of you who've seen the films or read the books know of which I speak. And, and it, it's been a long, bloody night. The orc armies of Saruman are getting the upper hand in, in what's going on. They've penetrated all the lines of defense. The, the orcs are pouring in like ants into the fortress and it looks like, okay, it's not going to be three movies. It's only going to be two. And our heroes are done. There just seems to be no way out of this one at this point. It, it's, in many respects, when you take a look at the whole corpus of the films, it may well be the darkest moment, roughly midway through the second film, the darkest moment of the entire trilogy. And in that moment, Gimli the dwarf says... The sun is rising. And in that moment, it's a brilliant way the director captures this, puts, it, puts the camera on Aragorn, and a flashback to Gandalf the wizard's voice saying, Look to my coming at the first light on the fifth day at dawn. Look to the east. And they do. And what do they see? They see Gandalf mounted upon his gorgeous white horse Shadowfax and the host of the Rohirrim and the sun rising and these, this force coming down the mountain towards those who are living in the darkness of what looks like utter defeat and desolation. And the war is won. And you're wondering, okay, that's really great. How does that help me? Let me tell you how it helps you. When you come to understand, transpose the battle of Helm's Deep over your life, and I don't mean the victory part, I mean the, the near defeat part. Transpose the battle of Helm's Deep nearly lost to the condition of this world and your life without Jesus. And now you're ready for the light. Now you're ready for your champion, your savior, to come with all his brilliant, glorious light as the light of the world come for even you and me. And now it's good news. Now it's the best news of all because you're beginning to hear it. Jesus is the light of the world. Ours is but to look to him. Oh, friends, may we, may we do so. May we look to him with all we are. Can we pray? Jesus, thank you. We pray that you'd help us to be honest. We pray that you'd help us to see the darkness for what it is, to face it, to mourn it, to be a little slower, to distract ourselves, to dumb down the nerves, the pain, 
Would you help us to be honest? Would you help us to be open, open to the claims that you are making, open to the promises that you are giving, and indeed also hearing, hearing, we have but to follow you. We pray in your name. Amen.